so I'm going to talk about um, the first path factor today, which is right view. And I've heard people talk about it before, and a lot of times I didn't necessarily agree with what they had to say. Uh, so this this is um, what I have come to understand right view means in Buddhism and the Eightfold Path. So right view has two parts. Right view has the mundane and the supramundane. And I'm going to start with the mundane first, which is probably the most practical way of looking at it. Number one, right view is to know the difference between right and wrong, skillful and unskillful. And this can be uh, problematic because right and wrong oftentimes is arbitrary and uh, changes without notice. Um, I'm reminded of the oil shortage back in the 70s and how we reduced the speed limit from 65 to 55 to conserve gasoline. It may be happening again. We don't know. Prices keep going up. And with me, I drive slow. So it was right to do that. Uh and that was a good thing. And now we drive 65 and uh, sometimes faster. And it's okay to do that. And that's a good thing as well. So, so right and wrong can change. But from a Buddhist perspective, we would say that um, right is when you are practicing generosity, kindness, and using wisdom to understand <clears throat> the situation you're in. We would consider wrong to be when it is filled with greed, hatred, and delusion. Let me put this. So the greed, hatred, and delusion, and one second here. There we go. Let me Okay. So the greed, hatred, and delusion would be um, misunderstanding the situation you're in and, and doing it from a very selfish perspective. So we have right and we have wrong. We have good and we have bad. We have skillful and we have unskillful. And in this mix, we throw in karma. And the deal with karma is it takes the place of a divine lawgiver. So we don't have a divine lawgiver defining for us what is right and wrong, good and bad. What we have instead is cause and consequence. And we can pretty much get enough feedback to understand whether what we're doing is good or bad, right and wrong, by the amount of suffering we're experiencing. So the more suffering we're experiencing, that would indicate to us that we are being unskillful. The less suffering we would experience, that would indicate to us that we're being more skillful. And that's the road we want to take. So it all boils down to, to really suffering and non-suffering, happiness and sadness. It's, it's a way we are perceiving the world around us and are experiencing and our experience in, in it. Okay. Now, in order to have it 
work effectively, we need to insert the concept of rebirth. And why is rebirth important in karma and right and wrong? Rebirth is important because that's where the consequences will arrive eventually. So all the karma that we have created in this life, all the intention, speech, and action, and their consequences will be transferred to the next life. And we will be the recipient of that. And we will either start in Palos Verdes or South Central. But as we go along in our next life and our next life and our next life, it's not fatalistic. Every moment we make a wise and conscious choice, we change the outcome of the karma, past karma and present karma. So it's really up to us to be conscious and sensitive to our life and the lives of others. Now, not everybody buys into rebirth, but the reason rebirth is such an important part is is it's transferred from one life to the next. But also, if we didn't have rebirth, we may feel that there is no consequence. For instance, you're an atheist and you don't believe in anything, and when you die, you feed the plants. Okay, now there are some people in the world that feel that way, but what would keep them on course for having a good and skillful life if there's no consequence to what you do? So you might think to yourself, well, it doesn't matter what I do because I'll be dead one day and feeding the the trees. So if I kill 100 people, I'm still going to be dead. And if I help 100 people, I'm still going to be dead. So what does it matter? So the Buddha had this very practical way of looking at what we do, what we say, and how we do it. And and it allowed us to judge and critique our life as being skillful or unskillful, good or bad. And rebirth is a very important part of that. Now, if you're a Christian and they have their rebirth, it's only once, and either it's heaven or hell. And, uh, and I'm, of course, oversimplifying this. So even they use the concept of, well, if you do good things, you'll have a reward at the end. And if you're unskillful and do bad things, you'll be punished at the end. So Buddhism has that too, but it's a little, it's a little more, we have a little more control over it, I'll say. Okay, that's the first mundane part of right view, good and bad, skillful and unskillful. The second part of right view is understanding the four noble truths at a relative and super mundane level. So at a relative level, understanding the um, four noble truths is conceptual. What we're doing is we're, we're... we're using the concepts we have learned in our study of Buddhism to figure out the path we're going to follow in order to end our suffering ultimately and never have to be reborn again and uh, forever exist or not exist, however one looks at it, in nirvana. Nirvana is beyond birth and death. 
and nirvana is beyond suffering. And that's the ultimate goal for every Buddhist, whether they are Mahayana or Theravada or Vajrayana. But some of the other schools of Buddhism decide to postpone their nirvana to be of service to all the sentient beings that are suffering. So we have that aspect as well. Okay, so let me briefly uh, remind everybody about the Four Noble Truths and the conceptual way of understanding them. Okay, number one, the first noble truth is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Not always unsatisfactory, but ultimately unsatisfactory. And because of that, we are sure to suffer if we're a human being, because we expect things to be better than they are. We expect people oftentimes to be better than they seem to be. And we look at our own life as being full of joy and happiness and success until it's not. And it's like that car uh, care commercial where they, where they say to you, remember, every car eventually will break down. You need our service. You need our insurance. And, and so it's the Buddhist would say, you know, just keep in mind that every life will end up filled with suffering because, second noble truth, because we have aversion and attachment, because we cling to things we really want to last forever, and we try to push away all the stuff we dislike and make us feel uncomfortable. And yet, we can't do it because we're simply one of the many factors that that suffering or happiness or success is arising. We're one of the contributing factors. So we have little to do with how our life unfolds, because for every, every situation and for every mindset we find ourselves in, there are 10,000 factors contributing to that. We're one. So we have, we're at Disneyland. It's just a wonderful day. We're having so much fun. And then they say, in 10 minutes, it will close. So we have to factor in this unhappiness as being connected to the impermanence of our life, that our life is, is, is not an event. Our life is a process, and it continues to change moment to moment. And when we like the change, we feel happy and satisfied and content. And when we don't like the change, we feel victimized and we suffer and we feel uncomfortable and we can hardly wait to change it back into feeling good again and sometimes it takes a really long time and sometimes it's almost instant but the the thing is it's always a process and never an event we're always in a constant state of becoming something else So the second truth is why we suffer, and that is because of desire and craving and clinging and aversion. The third truth that we're going to intellectually understand is that the Buddha said, I have understood, 
I have completed the path, I can tell you for sure that there is an option. There is a way out of your suffering. And I discovered that through following and re following it, but, but finding it again, a step because there, there, there were Buddhas before our Buddha. So it had been lost to the world, and our Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, rediscovered the Eightfold Path and the end to suffering. And what he is telling us is, I can tell you what I did to end my suffering and achieve nirvana, but I can't do it for you. I can tell you how to do it. I can tell you what I did and then you have to do it. So the responsibility falls upon us to understand conceptually and to live the Eightfold Path and to ultimately achieve the final goal of nirvana. So the first truth is life is ultimately, not always, ultimately unsatisfactory. And the reason for it is because we have craving and desire and a thirst that can't be quenched and we have attachment and we have aversion. And the answer to all that suffering is nirvana. So we now need the prescription. We now need the path. We now need to figure out how to get to nirvana. And that is the eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And those eight path factors work together, they're intertwined, and they will lead us to nirvana. Now, it's a little misleading to say they're going to lead us to nirvana, because as some schools of Buddhism say, we're already there, we're, but we're asleep. We're asleep at the wheel, and we need to wake up to the fact that we're already there. So we don't need to go anyplace. What we need to do is go inside and stop being distracted by the outside. And inside lies the, the goal, the goal of nirvana. So when we achieve nirvana, and, and I don't know anybody who has, but when we achieve nirvana, it seems to me that, that nothing happens in the body. It's all a transformation of consciousness. Because that's where the suffering occurs. The suffering occurs in the way we experience the world around us. So this is a radical transformation. A radical transformation. Okay, so those are the two mundane factors of right view. Number one, good and bad, skillful and unskillful, karma, rebirth. Those all work together to make us a more skillful person in the world. Number two, the conceptualization, the understanding, the intellectual understanding of the Four Noble Truths, breaking it down, being able to see how each of the truths interact with each other and eventually come to the path, which is the Eightfold Path. Okay, now we come to the supramundane part. And, and, and this is interesting because this is, this is beyond conceptualization. So 
I can remember when I was 14 years old, living in Phoenix, Arizona, and my mother, bless her heart, for my birthday, bought me a five-horsepower Honda motorcycle. And I was just in awe of this wonderful machine. I thought to myself, this is finally the freedom I've been looking for. I can go anywhere I want to, as long as I have enough gasoline and enough time. But the problem with looking at the motorcycle is I didn't know how to ride it. So I went to the dealership, and in the back, they had a little track. And that's where I began my learning of motorcycles and skillful ridership. Okay, so I, I, on one side was the clutch, and on one side was the brake, and then we have the gear shift, and we have this, and we have that. And I had to consciously think all the time in the beginning what I was doing. Uh, am I going to use the foot brake or the hand brake? If I'm going to change gears, I need to pull in the clutch, push the gear level, and let the clutch out easily. So I was very conscious. It was a completely conceptual way of riding the motorcycle. But then the days and weeks passed, and I was able to pull in the clutch without even thinking about it that I had done it enough times that it was an automatic response to wanting to go faster. Pull in the clutch, push the gear level, you get to go faster. And then if I needed to brake, I would pull in the, the brake on the hand and also the foot brake, and I would come to the stop sign. And, I, and it just seems second nature to me. I finally was able to integrate it into my life in a very special way without having to think about it. Okay, that's what the Eightfold Path at a super mundane level is, is we integrate the Eightfold Path. We don't have to think about right view or right intention or right speech. We've done it enough times that that is our automatic response to the situations we find ourselves in. That is the way we live in the world. That is the way we decipher the present moment experience of our life. And how long is that going to take? How long do you have to read the Eightfold Path or the Four Noble Truths in order to memorize it? And then turning that memorization into action. How long does it take to go from concept to activity, to living in the world. And, and is, it, is it linear? Do we always turn out to be a better person because we're practicing the Eightfold Path or understand the Four Noble Truths? And unfortunately, because we are a human being, our life seems to be linear, but it's not. It's a present moment experience. So some days are good and some days aren't so good. And we shouldn't get disappointed. We shouldn't feel victimized by the Eightfold Path or the Four Noble Truths. We should see it as simply a practice. It's what we do. And we get up and we practice and we try to practice with equanimity and, and, and feel that whatever occurs, there's a place in us that can accept it and get beyond it 
and go to the next part because, as I said before, the next part is part of the flow. It's it's the flow and the river and it's our life and it's the stream and it's always in process and it never turns out to be an event. So there's really no place to get stuck in the reality of our life. We're always going to go to the next place. Unfortunately, the downside of, of, of the flow is that there's never any place to stand. We can't say, this is where I'm going to stop now, and I'm not going to go any further because I feel good with what's going on now. We, we can't ever take our staff and hit the ground and say, this is my space now. And I'm very happy to be here. We, it's always going to change, always going to change. We always have to go forward. We can never go backward. And, and that can be intimidating to some people because we can never relax or rest until we finally achieve the goal of nirvana. And in the process of achieving nirvana, we are becoming a better person and the people around us are also using us perhaps as an example of what a good person is like if we can follow the Four Noble Truths, do the Eightfold Path, take the five precepts, not to kill, not to steal, no sexual misconduct, not to lie, not to consume intoxicants. We can be an example, a human example, not a perfect example, because humans are never perfect. Salvador Dali says, if you don't worry about being perfect, because you never will be. So we don't have to worry about perfection. Nirvana is the perfection, not us. And we can, we can find our place in the world, reduce our suffering, and reduce the suffering that the world experiences on a moment-to-moment basis. We no longer have to participate in creating the suffering we now can create less suffering. We now can create a place of peace and, and joy and clarity and wisdom just by understanding right view and practicing the Four Noble Truths and making the Eightfold Path our life. Beyond concept, super mundane, beyond the concept, but to actually live it moment to moment, every day.